Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you again this morning. Let me begin my uh, remarks by asking you a question. Have you ever had uh, an experience with other Christians uh, that has left you with a deeper desire to pray? Ever had that experience? I sure have. And one of those experiences is something that's repeated in my life a couple times a year, if not more. And uh, that uh, experience uh, involves my wife, Cheryl. She uh, commonly goes to bed a half hour to an hour earlier than I do. And uh, sometimes I think that she's probably already uh, on her way uh, into Wawa land. And uh, I want to slip into the bedroom to get something that I have forgotten to retrieve. And sometimes when that happens, uh, she's not in bed. Uh, She's by the bed. Uh, on her knees, and she's praying. Now, you don't know Cheryl, but Cheryl uh, makes her way around the house with a walker, a little three-wheeled walker. She can't uh, walk very well. Uh, And uh, she has stopped driving. Uh, If she needs to go someplace, I need to take her. Uh, I'm not a grocery shopper. Uh, But if we're together, and we're out shopping together, uh, I have to put her in a wheelchair for greater speed and mobility. (laughs) So to see her uh, by the bed, I know that it's taken some effort just to kneel. And I know it's going to take some effort for her to get up. But every night, that's where Cheryl is before she goes to bed. She's by her bed, and she's praying. It so ministers to me. Well, the disciples had a similar experience because the passage we're going to read today see the disciples express a deeper desire to pray by their experience of seeing Jesus pray. We're going to read the whole passage in a moment, but the first verse of the passage says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Now this is the fifth time in Luke's gospel the disciples have seen Jesus pray they see him pray in Luke 3 in Luke 5 in Luke 6 in Luke 9 and now in Luke 11 see that itself is a great lesson on prayer isn't it that if the son of the son of man needed to draw aside with great regularity to pray How much more do the sons and daughters of Adam need to draw aside and pray? But Jesus responds to his disciples' request to teach them to pray by telling them two things. We're going to see this as we read the text. First, he teaches them to pray by laying out a brief summary of what to pray. Uh, This is the content of prayer they're being taught. And that is the Lord's Prayer. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. That's the content of prayer. And then he gives them a parable, which is the highlight of all we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, And he teaches them the story of how to pray. This is the attitude of prayer. That's our focus this morning. So let's read this encounter, the disciples of Jesus, about them requesting them to be taught how to pray. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are, in my, are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. We're going to look very briefly at the first point, which is what this parable doesn't teach, and then more fully, what this parable does teach. Let me pray, and let's take a look at this text. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you yourself, by your example to your disciples, were a man of prayer and continue to be a man of prayer. We thank you for that example to us, and we thank you for this parable to teach us what it looks like relative to our attitude in praying. What should our attitude be, Lord? So, Lord, I pray you would take the busyness of this past week, the concerns of the coming week, and you'd cause us to put those behind us. You would calm and settle our heart, and we would be good listeners and doers of the word we're about to hear. Minister, Lord, to us, your needy people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look then, first of all, at what this parable does not teach. What doesn't it teach? And these are two quick points. First of all, the parable does not teach that we should expect God to be reluctant to give us anything when we pray. So we have this reluctant person in the house that won't give this individual bread, uh, but because they continue to pester him, he gives in. Uh, that's not the main theme of this parable. Matter of fact, that stands in contrast to the father at the second half of the parable, who is so eager to provide what their children ask. That is more the main theme uh, than the previous story of the person who's reluctant to give to his friend the bread he requests. So this does not teach that God's reluctant to give us anything. That's not the main point. Secondly, it does not teach that we should expect God to give us everything we pray for. That is not being taught here as well. 
any uh, parents experience with their children, we'll talk about this more later, will uh, tell them uh, that their response to their children depends upon the wisdom and legitimacy of what they ask. Because they can ask some pretty wild things, can't they? So the second thing it doesn't teach is that we should expect God to give us everything we pray for. Those two things are not being taught here. So if those are not being taught, then what is being taught? What does this parable teach? Let's look at the first point. First point is that God honors our prayers because we are persistent. Because of what we do is how God answers prayer. Look at verse 8 again. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, impotence means shameless persistence. It means shameless persistence. They ask, they ask, they ask, they don't stop asking. So we know that if you are a parent and been around children, you understand that children are great practicers of impudence, are they not? <laughs> shameless persistence. And we even see uh, that in this uh, story that he talks about ask, seek, knock. These are three increasingly more shameless persistence in what's being asked. It's a progression. Asking is easy. Seeking is a little bit more involved. Knocking is very involved. Children do all those things, don't they? Uh, babies go right to knocking. Because they don't know how to, uh, how, to, how, to, how to ask or seek. So they just start crying and wailing. Uh, they're at the very end. They are knocking. You know what they need. You may not be sure whether it's the diaper or whether they're hungry or exactly what's going on. But you know they have a need. And they wail. They are knocking. A little child uh, who can speak uh, does all three of those things, do they not? You know. Uh, can I please? And they'll ask for something. Uh, but if you uh, don't uh, do what they want, uh, they will seek you out. As something, if you travel to someplace else in the house, they will follow you and they will ask again. Will they not? And then uh, if you continue to resist what they ask for and they follow you to the next portion of the house that you go to, then they begin to wail or they begin to plead or they say, please, and they beg. Children know what shameless persistence is. But in this par parable, the friend's shameless persistence is triggered by his desperation. What is he desperate for? He has no bread for his visiting friend. So he asks out of need. Now in a, the Near Eastern culture, uh, hospitality was a sacred duty. You needed to provide for friends who visited. So when a friend would visit... It was required in that culture to put the writs on for that friend. I mean, you put the spread out if they come visit your home. And he didn't even have bread. It would be like in our culture coming to a wedding reception and there's no food. They didn't provide any food. That's the bind this person's in. He's in a real bind. So we have to ask the question, is that, why is he telling this parable of these two friends, one who is desperate uh, and the other who is reluctant? Well, 
First, you've already said that the polar opposite is true of this passage, and the first incident of the friend that does not want to give anything is not what it says about God. The second story in this little parable of the parent is more of how we need to see who the Lord is. So we want to understand that the need is the thing driving this sends requests for what they need. They have a need, they make that need known. So to the degree that we know our needs is to the degree that we will be praying. So if we knew how needy we actually were, if we knew how needy we actually were, we'd practice shameless persistence much more in our prayers. The thing that we are ignorant of many times is our own needs. Even pastors are many times not aware of their true needs. When I was pastoring in Williamsburg, Virginia, I had another pastor led a pastor's association. Uh, and we decided we needed to get to know one another better and more intimately. So we decided that we'd make it a practice and we gathered that at one point during our meeting we would break up into uh, small uh, cells of people and share prayer requests so we could pray for each other. And one of the requirements of that prayer request is it had to be a prayer request for yourself. It can't be a prayer request for somebody else, even though that may be important in your life. It needs to be about you. What are your needs? So you ever notice when we ask for prayer requests, how many times we request our third party prayer request? Pray for Uncle Joe. Pray for my dog who is sick. We pray about other things, but we don't ask for prayer for us. Pastors are the same way. Frequently, almost every time we would do this, someone would start to share in my group. I'd have to say, oh, John, sorry, can I interrupt John? I know what you're talking about is important to you, and I don't mean to belittle that. But we really need to hear what you need prayer for. How can we pray for you? So can you do that for us? <laughs> it's so hard for pastors to share and to disclose their own needs. They don't know how to do it. I think many times the church doesn't know how to do it. So here's the question. How many things should we be persistent about when we request prayer? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 helps us understand how to answer that question, which says, Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make a request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the answer to that question, what should we be persistent about? It is in everything. Let your request be made known to God about everything. Don't be anxious about anything. Pray. Now notice this passage in Philippians doesn't say uh, that we should make a request known to God uh, to make them known, not insisting our request be, be answered. Let your request be made known. It doesn't say insist on answers. There's a big difference. You see, prayer is the language of dependence. Prayer is the language of dependence. If you're not praying much, you're not depending much. When we pray little, we self-trust much. When we pray little, we self-trust much. 
Matthew Henry writes, this Puritan pastor and theologian, he writes, those who live without prayer live without God in this world. Those who live without prayer live without God in this world. But here's a question that you may ask. I have talked to many people that have this question. It's a good question. So why this praying with shameless persistence, why is that needed if God controls all things according to his purpose? If God's in control of everything, why do I need to pray? Good question, right? It's a great question. Well, let's explore that a little bit. How do we answer that? Because we know that, like in Job it says, God says, or it says about God, I know that you can do all things, speaking of God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If that's true, why in the world should we pray? Right? John Piper uh, answers that question. Here's what he says. Listen carefully. He says, God providentially ordains all events. We just read that from Job. Plus, he says, God never ordains an event without a cause. The event will happen if the cause happens. Answers to prayer, which is the event, are always ordained as effects or the results of prayer, which is the cause. Since both the cause and the effect or the result are ordained together, you can't say that the effect or the result will happen, even if the cause, prayer doesn't. Because God doesn't ordain effects or results without causes, which is prayer. God ordains the result. God ordains the cause, which is prayer. He ordains both. He ordains both. They work together. So whenever our prayers coincide with God's purposes, it is prayer that is from God's idea, not our own. It comes from God. God has put that into our heart to pray those things, to affect his purpose. More specifically, prayers that coincide with God's purposes originate from God through his spirit. Where do I get that from? Listen to Ephesians 6.18. Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So Paul is saying as a Christian, we ought to live in such a way that we walk by the Spirit. When we become believers in Christ, we become temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and he leads us on this path of sanctification. And one of the things he leads us on is the path of prayer. He puts things into our heart that we are to pray, that God's purposes would be affected. We are led to pray by his Spirit. Now look back at verse 1. It says, now Jesus was praying. Is that puzzling to you? So was Jesus praying only because he was a, a man that was God become man that took on flesh? So because he's in the flesh, he needs to pray. Is that why he was praying? Well, no, it isn't. 
Because since his resurrection and ascension, he continues to pray. Listen to Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Is that puzzling to you? So now wait a minute. Jesus is a part of the triune God. He is God. Right? So explain to me why is God praying? What is, what is that? Why does God pray? Isn't he God? Is it only Jesus that prays? Well, no. Listen to Romans 8, 27. It says the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Isn't the Holy Spirit a part of the triune God? Yes, he's God. Why is he praying? So we have Jesus who's praying, and we have the Holy Spirit who is praying. Why? Why are they praying? For at least two reasons. Because they are more aware than we how desperately needy we are. And they pray for us. That's an amazing thing. And they pray for us. Secondly, they are committed to fulfilling the triune God's purposes for the world. So they pray. Prayer is the privilege of participating in the purposes of God. It is the privilege of participating in the purposes of God. God has ordained the end and the means, and those means include Jesus' prayer, the Holy Spirit's prayer, our prayers, and our prayers. Now, this is a hard thing to, to grasp. I, I don't claim to thoroughly understand it. But here's what I know what the scriptures say. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Dear Christian, Jesus knows that prayer is divine power to destroy strongholds. The Holy Spirit knows that prayer is divine power to destroy strongholds. And we, the church, should know that our prayers are divine power to destroy strongholds. So God pleads with us. God urges us to pray about all things. That God's purposes would be fulfilled in that which we pray for. And to the degree that what we pray for touches on God's purposes, it will be fulfilled. And if you won't pray, God will raise up somebody else to pray that God's purposes will come to pass. God, the Spirit, God, the Son, God, the Father, depend upon God's prayers and our prayers to affect His purposes. Do you believe that? If you do, you will be overwhelmed with the sense of privilege that prayer is. Now, the Bible warns us of a kind of persistence that's a hindrance in praying. So let me make you aware of that. This is in Matthew 6, verse 7. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So if we pray like God will only hear our prayers, if we reach the right quota of words or use the right kind of words, if we think that's what God's like, then we're thinking that God is like a vending machine. If we put in the right amount of money, we're going to get something out. No, no, don't pray like that, Jesus says. Don't pray like that. In Luke 11, Jesus is talking about a person who prays, expecting God to respond because of his needs, not because of his words, not because he uses the right words or he uses enough of them. He's responding to his need. We come to God with our needs. That is what we're depending upon. God honors our prayers because we are persistent because of what we do. Then secondly, God honors our prayers because we are his children, because of who we are. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's talking about the Holy Spirit to mean that there's no greater gift than the Holy Spirit than God can give. And he even gives that to those who ask him. So I said at the beginning that we should not expect God to give us everything we pray for. So why won't God give us everything we pray for? Why won't he do that? Well, here's the first reason why. Because sometimes our prayers are a substitute for obedience. Sometimes our prayers are a substitute for our obedience. What do I mean by that? Listen to 1 John 5. John writes, And this is the confidence which we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the request made of him. So why will God hear? Because we pray according to his will. So as much as I can... I should attempt to learn God's revealed will for me. Where do we find that? Well, it's called in the Bible. In the scriptures, we find his revealed will. Let me just give you two obvious statements in scripture that talk about God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Is sexual immorality an option for the saint? No. God says, it's not my will that you engage in sexual immorality. I've had people tell me that they're praying about whether they should divorce their spouse because they're not happy. Well, sorry, God doesn't use happiness as a condition of whether you should stay married. God's will is you abstain from sexual immorality. If you're in a marital bond, you stay in it. If you violate that, you commit sexual immorality. You were not to do that. That's God's will. I don't need to pray about that. I need to pray that I walk as a faithful spouse in my marriage, not whether I should stay in it. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many things should we give thanks for? Everything. Why? Because God's purposes are being fulfilled in me. God will complete in me what he begins. So whether good or bad, God is at work. I don't need to rejoice that bad happened, if that's what I'm struggling with. 
But I can be thankful that regardless of the difficulty, God's purposes are being fulfilled in me. He is Lord of all things. I'm never a victim as a child of God. So even in his epistle, James warns a Christian of his or her motive in when they pray. Let me read what James has written, James 4, 3 through 4. James says, and this is the amplified version, he says, you do not ask God for them and yet fail to receive because you ask with wrong purpose and evil, selfish motives. Your intention is, when you get what you desire, to spend it in sensual pleasures. You are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Well, okay, what, is that, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> Listen to how John Piper describes what that means. He says he pictures the church as the wife of God. God has made us for himself and has given himself to us for our enjoyment. Therefore, it is adultery when we try to be friends with the world. If we seek from the world the pleasures we should seek in God, we are unfaithful to our marriage vows. And what's worse, when we go to our heavenly husband and actually pray for the resources with which to commit adultery with the world, it's a very wicked thing. It is as though we should ask our husband for money to hire male prostitutes to provide pleasures we don't find in him. So here's the principle. We are always to make known to God all our requests and to humbly insist on his will, not my will be done. I can bring burden and anxiety, but I need to have the humility to say, Lord, teach me your will. May your will be done. So why won't God give us everything we pray for? One, because sometimes our prayers are a substitute for obedience. Secondly, oftentimes we are poor judges of what's good or best for us, aren't we? Sometimes we are poor judges of what's best for us. So here's what praying is not. Praying is not trying to talk God into something he doesn't want to do. It's not trying to get what he doesn't want to get, give us. God is not a killjoy. He will do all things in our life to bring joy to our soul. But we're never to be in a position where we insist, demand, he give us what we want because we're not always the best judges of what's best for us. Pastor Stuart Briscoe says this. He says, the Father does not promise to grant positive answers to some of our requests because while we may think that we are asking for fish, what we may be desiring would be a serpent. Our system of values can be so confused that what we imagine to be bread could be as worthless as a stone. So here's what we're talking about then. We're talking about we need to be as honest as a child when we pray with what's on our heart. We need to be honest with our Heavenly Father. But we need to be as mature as a parent when we pray, knowing that everything a child asks for is not good for them or is not according to their parents' purpose for them. Both are true. 
Here's how John Calvin states this principle. He says, God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray for them if we were wiser. So why won't God grant us everything we pray for? Because sometimes our prayer is a substitute for obedience, and because oftentimes we are poor judges of what's good for us. So that's the parable of the persistent friend. What doesn't it teach? That we should expect God to be reluctant to give us anything? It doesn't teach that. Or it doesn't teach we should expect God to give us everything we pray for? It doesn't teach that either. So what does it teach? God honors our prayers because we are persistent because of what we do. And God honors our prayers because we are his children, because of who we are. Let me just close with a brief thought from John's Gospel. And this is John 14, 12 through 14. It's one of the more incredible passages in all of Scripture. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So at the beginning, Jesus says, we will do what works when he passes from this earth? We will do his works. And not just that, we will exceed his works. Now, now wait a minute. So Jesus, you're saying that on your ascension, I and the church that's left with me will approach the works you did while you were on earth and not just that, we will exceed them. Now, come on. Come on. Are you joking with me? Really? I'm going to do your works and more than those works because you go to the Father? Now, how in the world does that happen? Does anybody here claim to be Jesus in the works they do? I don't. So how do you make sense out of this passage? Well, from what he says that follows. Whatever you ask, it should be read, whatever you all, whatever you all ask the Father in my name, this I will do. How does the church approach and exceed the work of Christ? Pray. Pray. If this collective body is known to be a church that prays, you will join with all the saints that will approach and exceed the work of Christ. You will have divine power to destroy strongholds. God's purposes will be fulfilled because you prayed. God solicited your prayers to accomplish his work, that that would be accomplished. Your prayers can reach around the world today, tomorrow, the next day, because you prayed. May God grant this church the desire and the commitment to be a praying church. To be a church that prays. And to be a people that prays for one another. Look for those opportunities. Commit yourself to be a praying person. Express to one another your desire to pray for one another. A lot of times I find after worship services is a great time to pray for one another. When you gather with people 
uh, without any sort of agenda after the service and people say things to you that express need or concern or fear, oftentimes we'll say to that person, thank you, I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then you see them next week and you remember what you said last week and you remember, I didn't pray for them. Does that only happen to me or does it happen to you too? I'm trying to learn. Don't say that. Say this. Can I pray for you right now? Pray for him. Or ask someone to pray for you. Dear Saint, we don't realize the strength of this weapon that God's given to accomplish the work of God. But God depends upon your prayers, not just the Spirit's and Jesus' prayers, but yours too, that his purposes will be fulfilled in your life and those around you. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this body would be known as a praying church, that people would come and say, this church prays. These people trust God to move because they pray. Father, I pray that you would use this example as you did with the disciples when they saw Jesus pray, that they would desire to learn how to pray and not just to know what that looks like, but to practice what that is. Lord, make that a reality in their lives, I trust. In Jesus' name, amen.